Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. Now, built by High Caliber Millwrights, live from the Bet MGM Sportsbook at Spirit Mountain Casino, here's John Canzano with a ball-faced truth. Well, a couple of, couple of sad notes going on. I don't. I, my aim in this show is not to bring you down, but the memorial service, uh, the public memorial service for Bill Shonley going on today at uh, Memorial Coliseum. We'll talk about it. We'll have some sound from it coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. But uh, Bill Shonley passing away, the mayor of Rip City, get, getting, his, getting his due. And the thing that I always thought about with Sean's was he was the MC at everybody else's memorial service. He was the guy that got on stage, you know, just to uh, send off Kevin Duckworth and Jerome Kersey and Dale Schluter. And, you know, he was the guy, Maurice Lucas. And, you know, I always, over the years, as Sean Lee, I would joke with him. I'd say, who's going to speak at your funeral? You're the guy. Well, today, the public memorial service for Bill Shonley, legendary Blazers broadcaster, starting right about now at Memorial Coliseum. But uh, also a sad note over the weekend, Dick Fosbury, the guy, the Fosbury flop. Great Oregonian, Hall of Famer in our state. He passed away over the weekend. And our next guest is here to talk about that, plus the landscape of sports in our state. When we talk about Bob Welch, former Register Guard, Eugene Register Guard columnist, author of 25 books, including The Wizard of Foz, Dick Fosbury book, uh, The One Man High Jump Revolution. It's a guy who has had numerous articles in Sports Illustrated and Runner's World. Joining us now, Bob Welch. Uh, hey, thanks for making time. Dick Fosbury passed away over the weekend. Uh, you know, your immediate thoughts there. You wrote the book. Thanks, John. Yeah, I think the world lost perhaps the most unlikely gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist ever uh, yesterday. Fosbury, in, in many respects, never should have been on that podium. Um, you know, there's lots of stories that are kind of rags to riches, but there's so many more layers to the Fosbury story that that, that made it unlikely that he would uh, not only uh, become an Olympic champion, but uh, redefine high jumping. Yeah, and I'm in middle school in, uh, you know, years ago growing up in California, and, you know, they're teaching the Fosbury flop. And then, you know, I get to the state right. of Oregon, and I go, oh, wait a minute, what's the connection here? Let's go back yeah. to that. You say unlikely. What made it unlikely that Dick Fosbury would win a medal in the Olympics? So many things, John. You know, at, eight, at 14, he lost his brother in a hit-and-run accident while the two were riding their bikes together. His parents divorced. So here's this kid at a sophomore high school. He's essentially orphaned, and he's trying to find a, a place to fit in, to belong. And the only way that he can fit in is if he stays on the track team. And I, I argue that he all but willed himself a, a new style so that he could do that. And uh, then once he invented the Fosbury 
flop, uh, April 20th, 1963, at the Grants Pass Rotary Invitational. Coaches said it was illegal. Uh, doctors said he was going to break his back. Uh, competitors laughed at him. When he got a, a scholarship or half scholarship to OSU, Bernie Wagner tried to deprogram him and uh, get him back to doing the old Western role. Uh, he flunked out of school. Uh, almost lost his student determent, de de deferment and uh, during the Vietnam War draft. Uh, nearly drowned in Lake Tahoe, and once he is saved by, by a fellow high jumper, OSU high jumper, John Ratajich, you know, three months before the games. And then when he earned a spot on the team in, in June of 68 by winning a competition in L.A., uh, three months later the U.S. Olympic Committee changed the, their selection process and basically said, no, no, that's not going to count after all. You have to prove yourself up here at elevation at Lake Tahoe and win this meet. And he was down to his last jump at 7-2, miss, and he wouldn't, wouldn't make the team. But he made it, and he made 7-3, and the rest is history. It's uh, remarkable to kind of look at the progression of technique in the high jump. And we all now see everybody doing the Fosbury flop. But did, did you talk to Dick Fosbury about kind of what he did and how he discovered that method? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was it was accidental. I mean, it's been reported like that he was a, a mathematical genius and he figured it out. No, he was he he. The phosphory flop was born out of sheer desperation. He was trying to jump high, higher. He talked his coach in. He couldn't do the Western rule, so he tried. He talked his coach into doing the scissor during that meet in 1963. When he was in midair, he suddenly said, "You know what? I keep hitting my butt on the bar here. If I just maybe lean back." perhaps I'll get over it. He improved six inches in one day, and the flop was born. In the bus on the way back to Medford High, the coach said, I have no idea what you did today, but come into my office Monday, and let's see if we can find some film or something that will help you get better. But So it was he was sort of the accidental inventor of this thing. He would tell you that it just – he said, I just followed my body. I followed the feel, uh, but it was nothing mechanical. It was nothing that he mapped out on graph paper. It just sort of happened. It's fascinating to me uh, that he didn't become a larger figure in track and field, but when you get into track and field, everybody knew who Dick Fosbury was. And, sure. you know, how quickly did that catch on? How long was it before everybody was doing it? Uh, by the, by, uh, within a decade, essentially every uh, Olympic jumper was using the flop and, and, even even with the the ten years you know the eight years I guess between sixty eight and seventy six it was a it was a pretty uh, it, it was a tsunami of change uh, in high jumping and uh, and like you said nobody know, now knows that there's any other way uh, and it's interesting if you look at back historically you'll see that um, his style has outlasted the scissors the eastern roll the western roll. All of them. It's he's it's it's now you know it's it's 50 years for the flop, more than 50 years, and and so his is the not only the latest uh, uh, way to get over the bar, but it's it's the, you know the one that's lasted the longest. Dick Fosbury wins the gold medal, 1968, Mexico City. How does his life change after that? I think that's one of the more fascinating parts of Fosbury. Um, he never put all his eggs in the high-jumping basket. He, he would tell me over and over, you know what? I love to play basketball way more than I love to high-jump. In fact, Bernie Wagner would turn look, be looking for Fosbury, and somebody would say, I was over in Gill Coliseum playing hoops. <laughs> um, 
he and he wanted to be a civil engineer, but he had flunked out of school. But after the Olympics, he came back. They they gave him another chance, and he got his uh, degree in civil engineering. Went off to Idaho to become a civil engineer. I think, and then he he also there was a very famous case in Corvallis in '68 where Fred Milton, a black athlete, was kicked off the football team, and just about everybody, including most of the athletes at OSU, defended DeAndros and said uh, it was proper, but but Dick said no, it wasn't proper. He, it was discrimination, and Dick stood up for Fred Milton. Um, and Tommy Smith would, you know, told me, he said, you know, Fosbury was a deep thinker, and, you know, he he dared to say what he felt. And, and he was, uh, just like in high jumping, he was, you know, he literally turned his back on the establishment. He was he was willing to turn his back on the establishment in in, in uh, a matter of race, for example. Uh, he, you know, his post uh, Olympic uh, years have been fantastic. You know, he he became a civil engineer. He's been on Olympic committees. He put on training camps for kids. Uh, he's been a great ambassador for Medford, for Oregon State, uh, and for the state of Oregon in, throughout his life. And he went, he wound up. Um, becoming, he was a county commissioner at the time of his death over in Idaho, and uh, you know a friend, a, a friend of his, or a friend of mine, Mike Higgs, a former chamber of commerce uh, director over there, said, you know, he is just beloved over there, and people uh, just speak so highly of him, and, uh, and 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 never never let the ego get in the way of just being a really good human being. One of the things that impressed me most when I toured Oregon with him was how many close friendships he had in Medford at Oregon State, not people who knew him, not people who wanted to say, you know what, um, I can buy, I'm going to buy Fosbury a beer because, you know, he's an Olympic champ. No, people who loved the man because he was just Dick Fosbury, a good human being. Our guest, Bob Welch, uh, longtime sports columnist at the Eugene Register Guard, written more than 25 books. Uh, you've worked on these books with a variety of different people. How was working with Dick Fosbury maybe different than some of the other books you wrote? Yeah. First of all, I've never been a sports uh, columnist, general columnist. But, That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Fosbury was – I don't say this as a pun. He was the most laid-back uh, client I've ever had. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would write him an email, and then I would text him to say, did you get my email? And then I would call him to see if he got my text. And so he, he was difficult in that way, uh, getting information. But he was absolutely – he met me at South Lake Tahoe. He, we walked up into the woods at 7,500 feet to show where the track, uh, the, the uh, 1968 uh, Olympic trial track was set into the, this forest so it could replicate the elevation of Mexico City. Um, he was fun. He was laid back. He was just so unfull of himself. I remember we're, after an event in Medford, I said, can I take you to your hotel? And he goes, well, I don't really have one. And I said, well – you know, I I got an extra bed in mine, and he goes, no, sounds good. So he just was absolutely uh, just refreshing in that way that he that he was just so, like I said, uh, had very little ego. Always appreciated that. Bob, let me ask you, like when you look at, you know, he's obviously in the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame. He's an Olympic champion. Uh, Dick Fosbury, again, for people just tuning in, passed away uh, yesterday. Uh, he had been battling lymphoma, uh, but what do you when you look at the state of Oregon and you look at kind of you know the Steve Prefontaines and the Phil Knights and the you know Marcus Mariota and Terry Baker, 
what do you make of sort of the landscape of our state when it comes to sports? Because I, I even had this ex- example in Las Vegas. I was talking to one of the VPs of one of the casinos there in Vegas, and he was kind of talking to me in a way where I kind of went like, oh, he doesn't think much of the state of Oregon when it comes to sports. Uh, but our sports strength in this state, you've been around, you've seen the personalities. How did Fosbury help it, and what do you make of it? I uh... – I think that Oregon is a lot like its landscape of the Cascades. You know, in, in California, if you hike the high Sierras, um, there's just one 10-, 12,000-foot peak packed next to the, the rest of them. In Oregon, you know, you've got a beautiful Mount Hood here. You've got a Mount Jefferson here. That's three sisters. I think we, when you look back at our history, every now and then a Terry Baker, a, a Fosbury, a Pre, a, a Nescu, a, you know, Marcus Mariota, they, they, they sort of rise up, and, and, and they're above the rest. And, and I think that um, – I don't think that's anything to be ashamed about. But we're never – we're never going to be the California. We're never going to be the Texas. Uh, we're never going to have that sort of every year fantastic, you know, five-star athletes, uh, Heisman Trophy winners, and, and championship teams. I just don't think we are. I think that it's interesting um, – I think there's an interesting narrative that's coming into play right now in terms of football here with Oregon State with a 10-win season. They've beaten the Ducks. And, and Oregon having been sort of, you know, having such great success for so many years, kind of, you know, trying to find itself, trying to figure out, can you, can you redo this? So, so Oregon has to sort of refine itself, not only in football, but, you know, now basketball and, and, and baseball. They, of course, they really never had found themselves in baseball. But Oregon State now is going to have to show, can we, uh, can we um, – succeed with a target on our back because nobody's going to take the beavers for granted anymore and um uh they you know a friend of mine who actually went to oregon state always used to say bobby it's cold on the mountaintop and and the the beavers are going to get to to see if they can succeed in that kind of climate they've got a new stadium they've got momentum they've got the coach of the year and you know i hope great things for oregon state i grew up in corvallis of course i went to the university of oregon uh, for my journalism degree and uh, and then it'll be interesting to see if the ducks can 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 bounce back the track and field scene in our state you see oregon going full throttle with uh, obviously hayward field and all the investment they've made there do you have a sense of dick fosbury you know was he was he proud of kind of the heritage of this state i mean i know he's an oregon state guy but Oregon and Oregon State both being involved in track and field over the years. I think he was. I know he. I know he fought hard to try to bring men's track and field back at Oregon State, and I think he had a, he had a great reputation. He took great pride in being part of the the track and field fraternity, as it were. Um, and he, you know, he loved he loved being a Beaver. He he was so proud of being from Oregon State. Yet he loved jumping at Hayward Field and, and where, where track fans would, you know, 10,000 fans would be going crazy for him. And, and that was what made him special is he was a, he was a broad-minded guy. He, he not only loved he, – he was very competitive, but he loved talking to the Russians in Mexico City. Uh, and afterwards, when he became a, uh, on the Olympic Committee, he loved mixing it up with people from different countries. And so that, that's another one of his legacies, not only the courage to sort of defy everybody and say, hey, I've got a back, backwards over the high jump style that, that can work. That took courage, particularly for a high school sophomore. He was innovative, but he also had this perspective to see beyond the track, beyond the field, um, a, a bigger picture about human beings. And, and he made the world a better place because of it. Bob Welch, I appreciate your time. 
The Wizard of Foz is the book. Dick Fosbury passed away over the weekend. Bob, thanks for joining us to, to talk about him. John, it was my honor. Thank you so much. There it is. Good stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I go to middle school, and I hear all about the Fosbury flop. I come to the state of Oregon, and I go, hey, Dick Fosbury, that, this is where it came from? This was invented here? Uh, it's uh, it's like Tillamook uh, ice cream and Nike shoes and Dick Fosbury. Uh, coming up, we're going to play some Punch It audio. We have the best sound from all around, including uh, some Stephen A. Smith and some Dana Altman and certainly University of Portland uh, women's head coach Michael Meek. Plus, we'll talk about the movement in the NBA from Jimmy Garoppolo to where does Aaron Rodgers end up. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano, live from the BetMGM Sportsbook at Spirit Mountain Casino on 750 The Game. I'm in the BetMGM Sportsbook at Spirit Mountain Casino. Uh, we'll be talking with the Sportsbook manager, Justin, who is going to pop by here in a little bit. Uh, Steven's here as well. Steven, I noticed you were wandering around. What were you doing wandering around this casino? Oh, you know me. Uh, just checking. I'm checking out the lines. I, I was seeing if they had the University of Portland women's line on there. I could not find that. Mm-hmm. I may mean, have to go ask somebody to get a special line on that one, but uh, that's what I was—that's what I was specifically looking for. I was also looking at uh, some of the NIT action. You know, that starts up tomorrow as well. I'm all about it. Well, are you—are you really going to bet on the NIT? Yeah. Why that, not? That kind of scares me. No, see, you gotta—they're very mediocre teams in the NIT. Here's the thing, John. You have value right there, though, because. We talked about Oregon not having the juice. Yeah. What is their motivation to play? UC Irvine, they have a lot of motivation to play. You go UC Irvine money line, you're going to get, you know, two, you know, plus 250, plus 300. You can do that all across the board. You just take all the underdogs. It's a well, lot of value. A lot you, of value. So there, you're John. looking at, you're looking for opportunities yeah. and value. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking for uh okay. I capitalize on these 20-year-old college kids yeah. that aren't motivated. Judah, when you hear Steven talking about wagering on NIT games, do you do what I do and go, "Oh, I might I might have to intervene here?" <laughs> When I first met the guy, yeah, but uh, now I know this is what this is what brings him joy. This is what uh, keeps him okay. moving. So I'm, I did laugh when Jerry Palm was talking about, you know, expanding the tournament, and he's like, "Well, no one's gonna like it, except for you know the the gamblers the out there." I'm and, like, and Stephen was nodding. Oh, I heard that. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen was like, "You're speaking my love language yeah, now. Love Put 80 teams in this tournament." <laughs> it's the love language for Stephen. Oh, I'm it's all so about good. it. Uh, all right, let's play some punch and audio. We got great sound. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Jimmy G. Jimmy Garoppolo to the Raiders, Bill Barnwell on ESPN. Talked about this, uh, willed it into being... But uh, a reuniting of Josh McDaniels and Jimmy Garoppolo in Vegas. Punch it. For Jimmy Garoppolo, I think it does make sense. 
for the Raiders. This is a team that does need to save money. And in the big picture, look at this deal. Three years and $67.5 million reportedly per Adam Schefter. That's a much cheaper price than what Derek Carr was going to come in on and what Aaron Rodgers would come in on in a possible trade. So if you want that mix of veteran stability, obviously some injury concerns to Jimmy Garoppolo, but you know he's a winner. You know he can get the ball to your playmakers. And now you save some money to kind of help fix a defense that has been bad for about 15, 20 years or so now, I feel like there's kind of a middle ground here that makes sense for Jimmy Garoppolo signing with the Raiders. So, logical move to me. Look, I like the move for Jimmy. I don't think, obviously, he had a future in San Francisco. Uh, I think the Raiders roster, uh, you saw how many close games, how many one-score games they lost last year. It's a team that could be a lot better without adding a lot, and I think he is in the genre of Derek Carr. Like, I don't think it's, you know, I don't. I think the Raider fans are delusional if they think they're getting a huge upgrade. They're just getting a different version of a pretty steady, decent quarterback. But you can't put this team on the shoulders of Jimmy Garoppolo and ask him to go win. That's He's not that kind of QB. Uh, I think it it's a change of scenery move uh, as the Raiders get some new scenery and Garoppolo gets new scenery. We'll see how it goes. Uh, meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers still up in the air. Packers president and CEO Mark Murphy talking about why the Packers let Rodgers talk to the Jets. Punch it. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I can't get into all the details, but, you know, it's a situation where I think we wanted uh, to help Aaron achieve what he wanted as well as the Packers and hopefully, uh, you know, create a situation where it's kind of a win for both sides. Interesting win for both sides mentality. Stephen A. Smith thinks it would be huge if Aaron Rodgers goes to the AFC and Aaron Rodgers goes to the New York market and Aaron Rodgers takes a New York Jets franchise, assuming he lands there. He takes a New York Jets franchise that hasn't been to a Super Bowl since 1969 and he ends up winning a Super Bowl. I mean, you talk about something that just offsets mm -hmm. all of the criticism that has been aimed in his direction in recent memory. That would certainly do it. Some of the outlying, I'll call them outlying media outlets are reporting that the trade is already done, that Rodgers is heading to the Jets, others waiting for confirmation. Judah, do you have anything new on that, or it just appears that Aaron Rodgers is likely to end up with the New York Jets? Uh, it's likely. Uh, you know, a bunch of Jets players were tweeting about it, inferring it. I don't know why it's not quite official yet until uh, Shefty and Rappaport break it and say it. Uh, uh, it's not quite official. and Maybe Rodgers just saving it for Pat McAfee tomorrow. He has a regular uh, Tuesday appearance on the show. Stay tuned. Uh, I don't think it's going to be long, but it looks like uh, it looks like Aaron Rodgers will end up with the Jets. Hey, John, let me ask yeah. you this real quick. Yeah. If, if Rodgers does indeed go to the Jets, does that make them the AFC East favorite over the Bills? No. No. Even with that roster? Uh, I think one of the best, the best defense in the AFC last year. The, the, the gambler in you is going to say that. You're always looking for value. Yeah, there's value there. But, you know, I haven't – look – I don't know. I, I, I haven't given up on the on the Bills yet. Yeah. Like, I'm still looking at the Bills and Josh Allen and how that how good they were. And, like, I just think they ran into a snowstorm and a really – and a snowstorm of a football team in the Bengals in the playoffs. Otherwise, we might be talking about, did the, you know, the Bills might have been in the Super Bowl. I, they're not far away from the Super Bowl. How can, how can you put the Jets in front of them? And the emotional 
they had everything had to deal with Demar Hamlin. Like that yeah. had to have played into it. But you know, I, me and Judah were talking about this when you were gone. Like the Jets had the number one defense in the AFC. Yeah, they had the offensive rookie of the year, defensive rookie of the year. They have a great roster. It, I, I just wonder if Aaron Rodgers is that you know quote unquote missing piece to that to that team that he might be. Speaking of the missing piece. Uh, shooting was the missing piece for the University of Oregon in the Pac-12 basketball tournament as they lost badly to UCLA. Dana Altman talking about the inability to shoot and how it hurt his team, punching. Yeah, we um, didn't hit any threes, which we needed to hit a few of the open ones that we had. And um, so that I thought really hurt us the difference. They went nine for 19. We went three for 19. So that has been a problem for us all year. And it really was a problem today. I thought we had some really good looks and and just didn't get them. I, I liked the way we battled on the boards. Uh, they had given us problems on the boards, but we out-rebounded them uh, 40 to 30. I thought our guys really did a good job of competing there. But uh, Tiger got it going, and, and uh, you know we did a poor job of adjusting on him. Tiger Campbell uh, did get it going. Oregon had no answer. The Ducks aren't done, though. They are moving on to the NIT, the National Invitation Tournament. They are a number one seed. They get UC Irvine, 8 o'clock Wednesday, Matthew Knight Arena. First round game, 32-team tournament. Uh, you know, these teams met earlier in the season. The Anteaters beat the Ducks. They're part of the reason why the Ducks aren't in the tournament. And now they're finding them in the NIT. Uh, we're going to find out if Oregon wants to play another game. I said I didn't want to see another game. We're going to be forced to see a game on Wednesday. Do the Ducks players want to play another game? If they do, I think we will see them win at home, Matthew Knight Arena, uh, late in the season. It's a wonderful opportunity for them to avenge a loss. But let's find out, like, you know, do they have that kind of motivation? Do they have that heart? Meanwhile, University of Portland women's team, they made the field in the women's tournament, NCAA tournament. They're dancing. Second time in four years that Michael Meek's team has won the WCC tournament. He was on this show talking about how happy he is for his seniors. Punch it. Just awesome. I mean, I, it's such a surreal feeling. I think the, the team feels that way, and we have uh, five seniors that played on that 2020 team that, that you know, kind of made a similar run and, and won the league tournament. But then, of course, the next day the the um, the, the tournament was canceled. So it's just an amazing feeling for them and just, the work they put in and uh, the togetherness they've shown and just just really proud of this team. Great story. They get Oklahoma in a 12-seed versus 5-seed game. Keep an eye on the Pilots. I looked at Oklahoma's season. They, are, they, had a, they have a common opponent in BYU. Uh, University of Portland played them closer than Oklahoma did. I don't know. It's a little bit of a stretch when you talk about matchups. But, you know, you got a Portland team that's not traveling very far going to L.A., playing against an Oklahoma team that, you know, tied for the best regular season record in their conference. They were 14-4 and four in the regular season. They did not win their conference tournament, end up as a five seed. And, uh, you know, don't count Michael Meek and a very experienced University of Portland women's team out in this big dance. Jay Billis on ESPN talking about some teams he likes in the tournament. Here are some under-the-radar picks 
when you're filling out your bracket. Punch it. I like UConn. I think they're playing well, even though they got beat by Marquette in the tournament. Marquette's legit. I think they're an elite eight team. Uh, so I, I like Marquette coming out of the bottom part of that. And uh, and Duke is playing really well now. Like I think Duke is 17-1 and one when they have their full complement of players. Oh, Jay Billis spinning it for Duke once and all. Weird. That's weird, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Yeah, in the end, he's like, when they have all their players, what about everybody else when they have all their players? When they play on a Saturday night after 5 p.m. <laughs> with a full roster, they're undefeated. Yeah, no, I, I mean, Duke has been playing well. They've been playing better, but, uh, you know, they're, they're at a five seed. They're playing Oral Roberts. That's uh, it's a sneaky matchup there, John. Yeah, and Oral Roberts, as Jerry Palm told us earlier, really experienced uh, great shooting team. Have some guys that have been to the Elite Eight. They know how to win games. Keep an eye on uh, Oral Roberts uh, in an upset there. Uh, why does everybody like UConn? Why why did they emerged as a sweetheart? They're 16 to one. I checked them on the BetMGM board here at Spirit Mountain. 16 to one to win the thing. I've seen numerous people today have them in their Final Four. Why do they like UConn? You know, UConn's one of those teams that. At the start of the year, they're really good, right? There's a lot of hype around them. They started out really well in the season. But, John, they're an analytical darling. You, you go look at Ken Palm, they're number four in the nation in Ken Palm as a four seed in the tournament. So, you know, Ken Palm has them as one of the best teams in the nation right now. Offensively, they've been really good. Defensively, they're really good, and I think that's what you look for. The question that you have for them is Dan Hurley as his coach, right? In the last two years, they've had expectations also to do something in the tournament, and they've choked the last two years. Can he get over that hump? But I think talent-wise, this team is as good as anybody in the nation. And the fact that this year in college basketball, there's no real elite monster teams, it's open for anybody. So I think UConn is a sneaky team that can get in there as a four seed because analytically, like, they are really good compared to a lot of teams. Blazers had a tough one. Uh, you know, it feels like they've just fallen off. Are they tanking now? Are they not tanking? Pelicans led by as much as 39 in a 127-110 win over the Blazers. Here's Trey Murphy hitting a bunch of threes. Punch it. Trey, deep three. And, and you know what? You're going to need Trey to shoot Portland out of this zone. Trey, nice ball fake. And another. Oh. He's up to 30 and counting. Trey, if they can find him, Larry sets the pin. Shoot it. Trey, got back in. 39 and counting. There it is. Don't leave a guy named Trey open. That's your tip for this week. Are the Blazers, what are they doing, man? What are they doing? I mean, I feel like they've been tanking just without saying it, but now Dame missed last game. Uh, you know, they have a legitimate chance to have the sixth worst record in the NBA this season, which would give them a 9% chance at Victor Wimbanyama. And if that happens, John, I think they are le right away, they are one of the better teams of the Western Conference. That's their best path to get to be. But is the mistake that they waited so long to tank? Because you can tank without tanking. Uh, they went on a little run there and won a couple of games that maybe they could have, uh, you know, orchestrated better. They could have. Are they bad at tanking? They are. I, I was talking to one of my friends, and he said they're bad at winning and they're bad at losing. That, like, that's just how the Blazers are in general. They're just bad at everything, whether they want to win or they want to lose. So, like, I, I don't know, man. They need to tank the rest of this season. They're not going to make the playoffs, and even if they do, it's not going to do anything. So they need to try to get as many ping-pong balls as they can because uh, Victor Wimbanyama, he is a game-changer. That can change a franchise around. 14 regular season games to go. How do you tank? How do you lose without uh, being obvious about it? Well, the thing is, is this team's not very good anyways, so it may not be that hard, John. They have a tough schedule at the end of the year. I mean, they've been losing with Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons. They played really well against Philadelphia. They blew that game. Dame sets out the next game. I think you just kind of rest guys 
you know, one at a time, and this team's just not good enough, really, to win games. So I don't think it's going to be that hard to tank, and it won't be noticeable just because the roster isn't good. So right you're now. saying that they're not really tanking. They just This is who they, they are. Just, yeah, they just kind of stink. Yeah. yeah, They could have helped themselves earlier in the year. They would have followed my advice. I told them to tank before the season started. I, I'm with you. You remember that. I do. <laughs> Should have gone into tank mode on opening night. Hey, guys. Opening <laughs> video. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.